Hi friends, this is Kendra coming to you from Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and I'm super excited to be stewarding this first series of the Come and See podcasts with teachings from Nasser al All of these teachings come from the Come and See Church in Wichita, Kansas, which is led by Nasser and his lovely wife, Daisy. This first series is going to be a deep dive into the Gospel of John, and be sure to check out the show notes for any images or references that Nasser makes throughout the teaching. All right, enjoy! So we're going to pick up. So last week we had uh, kind of my overview of the Gospel of John. And uh, I told you I was going to give you the outline for that. And I will, but not tonight. You were waiting for him to leave. I was waiting for Khurram to leave, yeah. I thought he might judge me <laughs> for how I drew my rectangles. And so I thought it was just safer for my feelings to wait till he was gone. Um, so actually, no, I will... Uh, just do like a real brief, do like a rectangle like this now. Woo. It's like a big long scroll, right? Because maybe that's how John was originally written on this big long scroll. And, uh, you know, we have the first chapter of John, which is like this crazy, awesome prologue. And then we have, um, you know, from John 2 through really the end of 4 is this other mini section. And then we have like five through 10. And we have 11 through 12. And then we have 13 through 17, which is kind of this big important section. And then 18 through uh, 19 is say a crucifixion. And then we have like the end, 20. And then, oh no, we got a bonus ending which is 21, right? Okay. And I kind of mentioned this, and we'll see, hopefully see a little bit of it tonight. But like this kind of an outline of John, like we, nobody had to make it up because John literally put the outline in the letter. And he does some really interesting things with language and and namings and things that just suddenly cause you like as you're reading when you read this over and over again to cause you to kind of have see certain sections just kind of pop out and uh take on like a whole different significance um it's like he like and i said this last week it's like he expects us to, to just to read this gospel over and over again for the rest of our lives like he just expects that and so he's just like buried treasure like at, on every step, on every, every sentence of his gospel that we have to, and some of it we have to dig for. Some of it he puts that just like, it's just like, you know, when you hide Easter eggs and sometimes you put, you know, some of them just like right out in the open for the little kids. Like they're just right there. They just run and they're so excited. But then there's some that you, you kind of hide a little bit and maybe it's like hide, hidden beneath the cell phone or whatever. And they've got to look a little bit more. And John's done the same thing here. Some of his Easter eggs are right out in the open. You're going to catch it your first time through. Some Easter eggs are so deeply hidden. It may be your hundredth time reading through this gospel before suddenly it just pops out at you. But once you see it, just like the Easter egg, like you just, he's like, oh, it's so obvious. It's right there. Yeah, there's an Easter egg on top of the fireplace right there. You know, no, there isn't one right now. So don't look over there. <laughs> um, and so he, he starts this off like knowing that there's, that this is a controversial way to start a story about Jesus. Like look at the very first verse. He says, in the beginning. Why is that a controversial way to start his gospel? I mean, of all the ways he could have started it, like what does that, if you um, have had any portion of your life growing up around the temple or the synagogue, any kind of a Jewish tradition, when you hear the words in the beginning, where does your mind go? Genesis, Genesis chapter one, verse one. Right. And what is that? What is that chapter about? Creation. Creation, right? It's about how we got to everything that we have now. Right. That's 
Would you say that's an important story in the history of the universe? Yeah, that's a really important story, right? A very sort of how, why are we here? How did we get here? All of those things are answered in the first three chapters of Genesis. And that story begins with those words in the beginning. And so by starting his gospel story, the story his story of, of who Jesus is, and, and what his life and his death and his resurrection meant by beginning it with these same words. What is John saying? What, what, amongst other things, but what, what is he saying about this story that he's going to tell? Is it a significant story? Is it as significant as the story of how the universe came to be? He's saying, yeah, it is. He's challenging you. He's daring you. Compel this story up to that story, and you tell me if it doesn't sit with equal weight, equal importance. Because you know, if his point was just simply that, you know, Jesus is God, and he could have started any of but he starts it with, in the beginning. And, and just like, let's just read this first paragraph. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I see I have to already have to stop, because... Even though grammatically that sentence makes sense, logically, if, if you're reading this sentence with a, with a critical eye and mind, this does not logically make sense. This is not normal. What do you mean? Okay, in the beginning was the word, and that already is interesting because he's placing, like if you think of the story in Genesis, in the beginning, God created, right? But this is, in the beginning was the word, so already he's, he's substituting the, the, the name word in the place where your brain would normally be putting God. And so that's already like, wait, what are you saying? And the word was with God, and the word was God. So this word, and depending on who your Greek teacher was, it's either, you know, logos or logos um, in the Greek. He is God, and simultaneously he is also distinct from God, because he's with God, and he is God. And so, you know, how, how do you have, you have God, and you have his word, and these are somehow the same, you know, and yet distinct at the same time. And he's starting, I mean, he's starting his gospel off like that. Like, that's going to provoke people right away, right? Like, what is this? This isn't even, and, you know, he's writing it in Greek. So, you know, Greek people are going to read this. And, you know, Western thinkers are going to lose their mind over stuff like this. And how does this make any sense? But he's choosing to start us off with that because he obviously thinks this is the most important thing you need to know right off the bat before you go any further in the story is that this is a story about the Word of God, who is God and yet is distinct from God at the same time. And if that doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. Keep reading. So it says, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so if you are a person who's really familiar with the Hebrew Bible, you know, with the, the Jewish Old Testament, then already, like in these first two sentences, there are all of these passages in the Bible that are just like popping into your brain, just scripture verses. Like, it's like he's referencing all these things. And so um, can someone read for me like Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3? That's like the obvious one, right? So let's just read that out loud. Let's just get that out there. Who has a Bible? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Actually. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. No, just stop right there. That's perfect. And so we have God... And his word, right? Because God speaks on verse 3, right? But there's also another um, name or word that belongs in this picture that isn't 
John doesn't say, but it's sort of, he doesn't have to. If you know the passages, you're already thinking also, well, he also in the beginning was God's spirit, right? Who is also God and distinct from God at the same time. And that's going to pop back out here again in a second. And so then, um, can someone look up for me Proverbs 8? It works. Uh, let me see how much of that to read. How many of you are familiar with the, uh, the personification of wisdom that pops up in the book of Proverbs? How many of you have heard that before or studied that? It's one of those things. It's like you think you're just reading a bunch of you know, wise sayings and things like that. And then there's this whole character who shows up in the middle of the story. And my page is stuck together. Okay. Yes. So yeah, pick up, yeah, read from verse 12. Actually, no, read from 22. Let's just read from 22 um, through 31. This is wisdom speaking. Wisdom has been introduced. The Lord created me as the beginning of his works, before his deeds of long ago. From eternity I was appointed, from the beginning, from before the world existed. When there were no deep oceans, I was born. When there were no springs overflowing with water before the mountains were set in place, before the hills, I was born. Before he made the earth and its fields of the beginning of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the horizon over the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when the fountains of the deep grew strong, when he gave the sea his decree that the waters should not pass over his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth then i was beside him as a master craftsman and i was his delight day by day rejoicing before him at all times rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth and delighting in its people so yeah so you have this this story in, in proverbs about wisdom, and wisdom is like a person. God's wisdom is suddenly like a character in a story speaking on its own. God's wisdom has a life of its own, and God's wisdom is talking about how I, I was there at the beginning, and, and through me and with me, everything God made, he made by me. And then it goes through this whole you know, poetic rundown of the earth and the seas and the skies and everything with them. And it's everything that we saw in Genesis 1, all these things that God made in Genesis 1. And now we have this character in Proverbs calling itself wisdom that says, yeah, that was, that was me. And, and John is tying that both the wisdom of God that was present at the beginning with the word of God. And, and of all the things that he could call Jesus as, as the one through whom everything was made, why does he call him word? Well, it becomes really obvious. Like, how does God make everything in Genesis 1? Does he take a hammer and starts beating it, right? Does he? He speaks. Ten times in Genesis 1, it says, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. It's through his words. And obviously the spirit of God introduced in, in the second verse of the chapter is there as well, right? Because, I don't know, most of you have been hanging around me a long time, and I like to throw Hebrew words out there, right? The, the, the ruach, or ruh in Arabic, uh, that gets translated as spirit, also just means breath or wind. And you think, when I'm, I'm speaking right now, if I were to stop breathing or, or letting breath escape my lungs as I was speaking, what would you hear? Nothing. Right. 
Yeah, I have, without the breath, without the spirit, the spirit carries the word out. And so that's exactly why we see the spirit in verse 2 and then God's word in verse 3, because the spirit is preceding the word. And then through the word, we have creation. And then Proverbs tell us, and God's word is like wisdom personified. That wisdom that Solomon asked for, you know, he's, he's asking for the word of God to come alive in his heart is what he's asking for. And John is starting his gospel by pointing to all of these things and saying, and this is all Jesus. This is all Jesus. And we're told in verse 3, all things are made through him. Without, without him was not anything that was made. And uh, it's interesting, Proverbs 3.19 because I'm going to get for me Psalm 33, 6. And I'll get the Proverbs one. Psalm 33, 6. Mm-hmm. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. By his word and by his breath, or another way to translate that would be spirit. his spirit. By his word and his spirit. And so then Proverbs... Um, 319, um, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth by understanding he, he established the heavens. So again, the word of God is also connected with God's wisdom. And so we have this crazy picture that is difficult for us to understand, right? Like how... And, and what's going to happen is these, some of these are going to get new labels in this gospel, right? Because after this first section here in John 1, what is Jesus not going to be called anymore? Once he incarnates, he's not going to be called the word anymore in this gospel. John will never refer to him as the word again. It's just it, at, at the very beginning, as he introduces him as the word, then this, he becomes just Jesus, Right? And how is, in general, how is Jesus, more often than not, especially in John's gospel, how is he going to refer to God, this father, right? He's actually going to call him my father, Abbi, one word, yeah. And that's probably what Jesus was saying because, you know, he's most likely speaking Aramaic more often than not. Yeah, yeah. So we have, you know, the father, the son, and the spirit, and it's just right off the bat introduced and john doesn't spend any time trying to explain to this how this makes any sense that that this whole picture when when we talk about the god of the bible you know is actually this with these parts that are distinct from one another and yet in totality make up this one being who is god he doesn't like spend any time trying to teach us how that makes any sense at all. Why do you think that is? Because it's probably a waste of time. And because John knows, because John uh, was born, you know, as a Jew in Judaism, and they just, and as most Easterners will tell you, the, the truly supernatural has a, a level of mystery to it. And if everything in the universe that it, we, we believe has is, is been made, it's cre all created stuff, then okay, maybe we can believe to some level we can try to break it all apart and understand how it all works and the physics of it and all of that. But if there's a God who made all of it, who's outside of all of that, why would we, like the, uh, an Eastern thinker would say, why would we ever think that we could totally understand the maker of the world that we're in and be able to summarize him in a formula or some system of rules of this is how he works and this is how all of this 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 relationship like that's not the point the point of even revealing this part of of god to us i don't think it's so that we can understand the pieces that make up god i think that there's a message in this that god is a god of unity he's a god of community and if you see the way that these persons these distinct persons within god interact with one another there it's not just any kind of relationship it's not just any kind of community or unity it's one that's built that's focused around love you constantly see the love relationship between the father and the son and the spirit and and it just kind of goes on in this 
never-ending dance, right? Brian and I have had conversations about that. It's just, it's incredible. And that's, we wouldn't get understand that about God, how core, how, how, how it's just such a core element of who he is if we didn't at least have the curtain pulled back enough for us that we could understand this part of it, the surface level part of it. But trying to make sense of, well, how does that work? How are there not three gods? How is it still one God? It is, he's, we know it's one God because he tells us he's one God. And yet he also tells us this is part of what he looks like as one God. There's a mystery to it because he's God and we're not. So then in verse 4 it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So already John is giving us um, indication that in this story there's going to be things that stand for other things. And he's, he's going to start teaching us right away how we are to think about these things. And so we're told that the life that's in Jesus is the same thing as what? Light, right? And you know, we talked about this last week. John talk, told us you know, he could have written so many books and, and filled up so many scrolls about the life of Jesus and everything that he said and did, and he would, he would have run out of paper and ink. Like it just, so he tells us that at the, end, at the end of the gospel, because he wants us to, to be reminded when we go back and read it again, that he didn't waste words. He didn't just say things for the sake of saying them. He didn't throw out you know, excessive descriptions of things unless it was super important. So this is then super important. John is giving you your little decoder ring for the whole rest of the gospel, that every time you see life, Think about light. Think about that same thing as light. And every time you see light, think about life and until the two become so blended and mixed together that light and life are just synonyms for the same thing. That's what he's already starting to teach us. And he's going to do, he's going to expound on that and keep going um, throughout the gospel. And we're told that this life, you know, is the light of man. And then we're told the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, which, of course, since he's already activated, you know, right from the very first verse, the whole, you know, Genesis chapter one, what is the first thing God says, by the way? What is the first act of the word of God? Is to do what? Create light. Like he says, let there be light. Right now, when he did that, was there suddenly no more darkness anywhere? There was darkness before he spoke, right? We're told in Genesis, the world is dark covered in deep water, it's, it's, it's chaos, it's, it's, it's a, a wasteland. It's, it, it looks like death, really. It looks like a dead world. And then the Word of God, the Spirit and the Spirit of God is hovering, and the Word of God comes, God speaks, and says, let there be light. And it's the first thing he addresses about this dead world, is he brings light, because he's bringing life into the world, right? And when he brings that light, is all the darkness gone? No. He says that now God has divided the darkness and light, and there's day and that there's night. And this isn't just because, you know, Jews 3,000 years ago, you know, were trying to figure out where nighttime and daytime come from, right? There's something, there's a, something a lot deeper spiritually that is being uh, thrown out there for us to chew on for hours and hours on a long walk with a cup of tea or in a coffee shop with your friend, you know, as you pray and wrestle through this stuff. But the idea is that from the very beginning, suddenly there was conflict. There's light and there's darkness opposing it. And John is bringing our attention back to that from the very beginning in Genesis 1, there, there is a darkness in this world that is opposed to God's light, but light, God's light comes in and it's not really a battle. The darkness wants to envelop the light and wants to overcome the light. There's many different ways that Greek word gets translated in our Bibles here in John 1. One is, is it's trying to, to apprehend the light or, or uh, understand the light, which I think is kind of a, of a weaker way to say it. But, but the point is that the light though, can't be overcome. It can't be caught. It can't be apprehended. The light comes in and pushes back the darkness everywhere it goes. And the darkness has no power, no authority to take over the light. But the light has authority to come into the darkness. So since he's already set this up, he's already like thrown that out there. He's, gonna, he's left this 
side of the equation than blank. If light is the same as life, then what would darkness be the same as? And he doesn't even have to say it in the verse because already he's trying to train our minds to think as we're reading this story to, to see these metaphors and to let these things jump out at us as we very thoughtfully, reflectively read through this story. So everywhere we see darkness, we want to think about that darkness is, so being in darkness is the same thing as being dead. Just like being in the light is the same thing as having life and vice versa. So in verse 6, so now we're, we're introduced to John the Baptist. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So John the Baptist comes and he's sent from God and his whole job is to be a witness. And you're just like, and I love how the ESV does this. Some of them say he came, he came as a witness to testify about the light. And that's an unfortunate, just because in English, that is literally what it's saying. But in English, we have two different words that those, two different roots that those terms come from, witness and testimony. In the Greek, they come from the same word. And so it's literally like, I like how it says witness and bear witness, because it would, it would pop out like you, like he's a witness who bears witness. He does that thing. And he's, he's pointing to, he's testifying to this light, this life that has come into the world. And even though he's not the life, he's not the light, and John's not claiming that, he's enabled to see it. Because he's in the light, he can see the light and recognize the light. He has life in him. He's not dead or in darkness, so he can talk about the light. And he says, the true light, in verse 9, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And why is that? So the light has come now, and this light is life. This light is also the word, right? So the word has come, who is the light, who is the life. And the world is just not connecting with this. What, what does that say about the world? The world's living on, under this line here, right? This is where the world, the world is in darkness and in death. And so when Jesus comes, he's, he's operating at a level that they don't recognize him. They don't see him. They're, they're dead. They're blind. And so they can't recognize who has just shown up on planet Earth. It says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So this is a horribly sad statement, right? Because we can get that the world, the Gentile world, would not rec recognize the God of Israel who has come to visit his people. But, but we're told beyond just the world, even Israel is wrapped up, so wrapped up in the world at this point that they also don't recognize the very light, the very life, that was supposed to be in them, that they were supposed to be testifying to, like John the Baptist is. Like they as a whole nation of people were supposed to fulfill the role that John the Baptist is fulfilling all by himself. But they're so wrapped up in the world that they've missed it. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the authority to become children of God. So how do we move from this level of being in darkness and in death and totally tangled up in the world, whether they're part of Israel or not? How do we get up to where we can actually see his light, experience his life to, to come to understand and know the word of God? How do we do that? This is verse 12. How do we receive him? Believe. We believe. We believe. So belief, I'm just going to put trust because I, I, the English word belief is so watered down these days. Um, 
And trust kiss seems like a little bit stronger way to say that same thing. The idea that we, and we, and we trust um, in what? We trust his trust in his name. And if you are an Eastern thinker, you know that names, everybody's name means something. Everybody's name tells you something about them. You know, my name Nasser means something. Um, and, you know, honestly, it, it's a, it tells you something about who I am, if you know what it means. And so we trust in God's name is the same thing to trust in his character, right? It's about believing or trusting that God is who he says he is. Not who we think he is, but who he says he is. When we do that, we pass from here up into here, and we get this. We go from death to life by trusting. And it's like, there's the gospel, right? Like, he's already given you the, the, the road of salvation, like in the first, in the second paragraph, you know, of, of his story. I guess it's the third paragraph, but still. So we, we become, and, and, it, and then that puts in this whole new thing that like when you do that, when you make that trust and, and when you move from here to being in, in, in the light and in life, that there's this element now you are now a child of God. We haven't even gotten to, to John 3 yet and being born again and all that. And yet he's already saying, he's already introducing this, right? He's, and this is the thing that John does is he throws out so much in this first, in this first prologue in, in, the, in the opening chapter, he throws out so much that then the rest of it is just about developing it, going deeper, looking at it from different angles so that you really understand it. So that he doesn't, I don't think he expects us that the very first time we read this, we're going to pick out all this stuff. But he expects that after you've read it a few more times and you're starting to recognize these themes, and you're like, you know, he said that in the first chapter, that light and life. And now that I think about it, how many of these stories are, have to do with Jesus talking about him being the life or being light or has to do with, with blindness or seeing, belief and unbelief, right? So belief, oh, that's a big one. I should put that here. So belief is tied to the light and seeing, unbelief is tied to blindness and darkness, right? And that's, that's the other dichotomy there. Believing leads to life. Unbelief leads to death. Setting all these things up right in the first chapter. And he says, and, and so these, and these, children, these children of God that we become through belief, they're not like other children. They're not like, you know, our, our, our little ones that some of us have or who have already raised, right? They're not children that are of blood, or were born um, of, the, of the will of the flesh or the will of man. They were, they're not, we're not children that, that, we, that came into being because of something someone else did for right or for wrong or planned or unplanned or anything like that, but, but children that are born from God. And what does that even mean? What does it mean to be born from God? And that's what, that's what John 3 is about is then he just sets that out there and just like, what is he talking about? And he's just like, hold on, we'll get to that. But I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna just throw all these things out there. And so let me give huh, uh, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is now like, you know, all kinds of things are, are activating from the Torah when he says that the word became flesh and dwelt, or literally the, in, the, in the Greek word, there's the same word. It's, it comes off the same root word for tabernacle that gets used um, in the Greek translation um, of Exodus. And so it says like the word, this word, this word, part of God is now, you know, has come and become flesh or become a human. This part of God that is God and distinct from God, suddenly a human. And John, the language that God uses to describe that, it's as if, you know, God came and made his tabernacle with us or set up his tent with us. And so if you're, you know, a Jewish person reading this, you're immediately thinking about the tent, capital T, right? That Moses was given the blueprint for it when they were in the wilderness, right? That God said, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring you into this promised land where you're going to set up a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom where God is king <laughs> and, and all his people are serving him and pointing all the nations to him and, and showing what justice, real justice looks like and mercy and love 
and, and compassion and all these things. You're going to reflect that to the rest of the world. And God's like, and by the way, I'm not just sending you to go do this for me. I'm coming with you. You guys are all traveling and, and setting up tents every night. I'm going to have my own tent and I'm going to go, I'm going to be with you on this camping trip. But I'm not going to have just any old tent. Like God gave specific blueprints of a very, very special tent that was full of all kinds of symbolism. When you talk about this, the simple symbolism of the bread and the cup, right? Like there's like a hundred elements of symbolism in the tabernacle. And it all is pointing back um, to the Garden of Eden and, and this being this place where we get to go back and be in God's presence again as if we had never sinned. Like that's how the whole interior of the tabernacle and later the temple is all set up. And, and once you recognize that, then it suddenly makes sense. Like why are there these certain like incense and perfumes and things that are all supposed to smell like these flowers that are described? And there's all these, these pictures of things that look like fruit or like carved into things of like animals or trees. It's because it's supposed to make you think when you walk in, you feel like if you were to close your eyes and just take a breath, that you would just smell, smells like you were in a garden. You could almost taste the fruit. Then then you open your eyes and you see, you know, images of, of trees and animals and things. It's like you're in the garden again. And all the gold, right? It's no accident that in Genesis 2, Moses talks to us about all the gold that was there in Eden everywhere. Like these just, just coming, like instead of just regular rocks, there's just gold and gems and things just popping out of the ground practice. So beautiful. And all those things are in the tabernacle and later the temple, right? And so that, that, that was a place where it was like heaven and earth overlapped. And when the priests would go in, it was like they were going in literally into God's presence. And, and so it, was a, it wasn't just a tent. It was, it was an amazing tent. It was the presence of God on earth. And now John says, it's happened again, guys. Only this time, the tent is made of flesh. God's presence, God has come to camp out with his people for a time. And this time he's wearing flesh instead of a tent or instead of a building that's just stuck there and doesn't move. Now he's walking around, moving around with us. And he says, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. <laughs> and this is just like ridiculous because what he's now pointing to and just like that one verse immediately it would bring up the scenario um, if you're just someone who loves the Torah and Jews, you know, Jewish boys and girls, when they grew up, they would just be studying this book over and over and over again, all through growing up. So they'd know when they hear grace and truth, oh, wow, glory, we've seen glory. They're immediately going to go to Exodus 33 and 34 in their mind, right? And so I'm just going to summarize it real quick. So Moses went up, up on the mountain to get the, he's got the Ten Commandments in writing. God's already kind of verbally given it to them, but now he's going up, he's going to get it in writing, and he's going to come down, they're going to enshrine this. This is going to be our, our code of how we live as God's people. And he comes down, and what are the people doing? They've already broken multiple commandments, um, especially if you read between the lines of what some of them were doing with one another. They've broken multiple commandments before they've even... Like, and they agreed, like, oh, God, this is easy. We can do this. And then Moses goes up. Moses has been gone too long. He, who knows what happened to him or if God's coming back. Let's, let's just make a golden cow and worship that and have a big party, just like we used to in Egypt. And, you know, it's, it's terrible and it's heartbreaking. And God's very heartbroken by this. And God offers to Moses, you know, we could just, like, wipe out all these people and just start over with you. And Moses is like... No, God, that's not who you are. You, you don't want to do that. Um, that's, that's just not who you are. And God's like, you're right, but I want you to intercede for them, <laughs> and, uh, and I'll spare them. And what happens is, of course, is that, that do some people die? Yeah, a couple thousand die. The ones who are unrepentant and do not want any part of this, anymore of this journey that God has invited his people on. But all the rest are, are forgiven, thanks to the intercession of Moses. And after this, this scene, Moses is just like, man, like, and we don't know, like, you know, because this is how the, the Hebrew Bible works. It doesn't give us a lot of, like, people's inner thoughts and, like, what they were thinking. 
We're left to ponder that for ourselves and put ourselves in the story. But when I put myself in that story, and if I, if I was Moses, I, I would be thinking like, man, that worked. <laughs> like, I prayed and God forgave all these people and like didn't kill them. Like, that's, that's amazing. Like, how does that work? And so Moses says to God, like, you've given me your name, and that's a big deal. That's a big insight into your nature and your character and who you are, right? You've, I've, you've been giving me, giving me your name, but I really want to know, like, like, who you are. Like, I want to know more about you. I want to see your face. And what he's asking when he, see, when he asks to see God's face, he's not thinking, like, literally that God has, like, a face like a person that he wants to see if God has brown eyes or, or green eyes or blue eyes. When you see someone's face, that's their identity. It's, it's their full identity, right? Like, I, you know, my, in my wallet, I have a driver's license. What part of my body do you think is pictured on my driver's license? It's not my foot. You're not going to identify me by my foot, but you will identify me by my face. And so when Go- Moses is asking to see God's face, he wants a fuller picture of who God is. And, Mo- and God says, you know, I appreciate what you're asking, but, but for me to do that with you right now, would, it you would destroy you. Like, you can't stand before my face and live. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you um, in this space in the rock of this mountain. And my glory, this is where it's tying back to what John says, we, you know, glory. My glory is going to pass before you. And I'm going to cover you with my hand. These are all just metaphors, right? Not saying God had a giant hand came down, right? But, but in a sense, God's covering him with his hand. And he says, and I'm going to pass before you. And then you'll be able to see me from behind. Like kind of see my silhouette, if you will. You'll see kind of a shadow of me. And that, that, that's as good as I can give you right now. And so we have what that looks like then in Exodus 34. Um... In uh, verses six and seven, and so the Lord, you know, descends, and what is the Lord? And, and it's all about showing, you know, show me your face. And God's like, I'm going to show you my back. But you notice what is described here, what he, what he doesn't actually see anything. What does he actually experience with his five senses? He hears. He hears. Because he, seeing God's back is, is hearing this God declaim, uh, proclaiming this in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He gets to hear the word of God. He wants to see the glory of God. He gets to hear the word of God. And so what John is saying to all those young Jewish boys and girls who have grown up into adults and are thinking, man, but wouldn't that have been cool? What would that have been look like to really see God's face, to be able to look with our eyes and see God's glory? Okay, so glory. We got to talk about that for a second. Glory in the Bible. So, and this is... Uh, the, so glory in English, right? In the old, in the, in the Greek. So when John says it there, the Greek is, is doxa, right? And that's what we have in the new Testament for glory. And this has a bunch of meaning to it. Um, and then in the Hebrew, um, it's a three letter word, kabod, um, and this word, because it's Hebrew, and Hebrew is awesome, it covers everything doxa covers and more, and more. Um, and so I have a theory that even though the New Testament is written in Greek, most of the writers of the New Testament who spoke Aramaic or Hebrew, um, they may do, because they had to get it out in a language that the rest of the world could understand at that time, which was Greek and not Hebrew. But often they used Greek words, but meant the Hebrew meaning, not the Greek meaning. And I feel a little justified in that when it comes to something like this in John, because this word doxa in Greek is never, it could never mean anything that you could see with your eyes. Never. But kabod you can see. So doxa means it's more, it's a, 
an intrinsic weightiness. It's about honor. It's about reputation, which, you know, the word glory has some of that, right? But even in English, when we think about glory, we're always still like, I don't know, what do you, when I, what pick pops in your head when I say glory? What do you imagine? Any of you? Bright light, golden, like sparkles, gemstones, gold, right? Like that's what I think of when I think of glory, right? Like beams of energy and whatever, right? Doxa doesn't really encompass that, but kabod does in the Hebrew word, because the Hebrew word at one level, yeah, it means like honor and reputation and all of that. It also means heaviness or weightiness. And it also means visible splendor. Like the, the visible, be radiant beauty of something is its glory. And that makes sense why Moses would say, I want to see that. I want to see yours, God. I want to see what your visible splendor looks like. And God's like, yeah, that would just burn you up. <laughs> Can't show you that. Um, I like you. Um, right? Um, but John is saying here, and God came and tabernacled among us. But this is different than when he tented with Moses and the gang in the wilderness. He says, we have seen his glory. All of us, we saw it. We saw the visible, I don't think he's meaning this. I think he's meaning this kind of glory. The visible splendor of God, full of grace and truth. And that grace and truth is a throwback to the end of Exodus 34, 6, where it says abounding or overflowing or full of steadfast love or grace and faithfulness or truth. Because in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew word, amen, where we get amen, that's the word in Exodus. It also means truth or faithfulness. And so he's saying that, that, that word of God has become flesh now. We can actually see the word. Moses heard the word that was like looking at God's back. We've seen God's word, which is like looking at his face. His identity is unveiled before us now. Isn't that amazing? It's like, it's crazy amazing. And so he says, um, and this is why John bore witness about him. And he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Because John recognized who Jesus, the Jesus, even though he looks like a human, that when we see this, this human, we are actually seeing the glory of God. We are seeing the visible splendor of God, but it's not about how handsome he is or how he dresses or curls his hair. It's, it's not about any of that because the glory of God, when, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, God spoke and proclaimed his attributes, his graciousness, his mercy, his love, his faithfulness. And Jesus is the embodiment of that glory. He's that glory wearing skin. And so we see him, it's like, I'm interacting with God's love right now when I talk to Jesus. When I put my arm around him, I am hugging God's mercy. It's incredible. When I touch him, I'm touching truth. Like, it's amazing. And so he says, from his fullness, because he's overflowing, right? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So everything that God was proclaiming to Moses, we're now being given through Jesus. He just gave us that. The, the mercy, the grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast. Like we who have touched him and seen him and, and trusted and believed in him, received his word as light and life. We now possess all of those things. All of those attributes of God are now at work in us. So he says, no one has ever seen God. You know, that's what Moses asked to see. And God said, nope, nobody can ever see me. The only God who is at the Father's side, who's God and distinct from the Father, but is still God, he has made him known. And that's just the setup. That's just, the, that's just the introduction of the prologue of John. And he's like, he's thrown all of this at us. I mean, it's like drinking from a fire hose of, of spiritual truth and information, right? And again, don't feel stupid if you've read this, 
you know, 12 times and you didn't see half of these things. Wait till you've read it 1,200 times, you know, and you're going to keep seeing more and more things. Every time I read this book, I find new things every single time. And I don't think I'm ever going to run out. I think you can read every day for the rest of my life and not run out of things to see and see these connections and how it all ties in. And by the way, I'm very loosely like throwing some of these passages at you. Like there's way more like Old Testament passages than even this, but like we would be going like one verse a week if I just gave you the exhaustive list of all the Old Testament things. But as you know to look for these things, and this is kind of the cool thing, even if you're not a big reader of the Old Testament, read as you're getting some of this stuff, go back and reread Exodus, reread Genesis, and just looking for these themes. And just see how these things now begin to pop out to you. And now you're just like, oh my goodness, there's Jesus. That's Jesus right there. That's talking about him. Oh, wow. And you're going to see this stuff on every page. And it just, it'll wreck you. And then you'll be like, wow, now I got to read the whole Bible 1,200 times. Not just the Gospel of John. And, you know, that's what, you know, why we have, you know, 70 years plus or whatever on this earth. So that we can just keep reading this book and being amazed. And telling other people and showing other people, like, have you seen this book? Have you seen how amazing this book is? There's no book like it on planet Earth. So, all right. So we're going to stop there. I'm assuming that dinner is ready. Or probably close to. I think it is. So, yes. So let's pray. Abba. Abba na samawat. Oh, God, you are so good. We love you. We love that you are simultaneously enthroned in heaven and present with us in this room. And that for everyone in this room who has placed their trust in you, who has believed in your name, Lord Jesus, you're also very present in us, that you have made us a part of your temple on earth, that you have filled us to overflowing with your life, with your light, with all your glorious attributes of grace, grace and mercy and patience and love and faithfulness. Lord, we are so sorry that we don't always live as your children, reflecting you and representing you, God. But Lord, we just ask your forgiveness and ask that you would continue to empower us and transform us by your spirit who is alive and at work in us as we continue to worship and, and live in your word, God, that you would transform our lives to be living testimonies, just as John the Baptist was, to, to be witnesses who bear witness, because we have seen and touched the glory of God. The Come and See podcast was created to share teachings from Nasser Al-Ghatani from the Come and See Church in Wichita, Kansas. For more information or to see the teaching videos, visit comeandsee.church. Opening music comes from Chris D'Souza. You can hear more sweet tunes from him by searching his name, Chris D'Souza, on Spotify. To donate to Nasser and Daisy's ministry, you can find a link in the podcast episode description. All right, grace and peace, friends.